Good morning, everyone. I hope you had a good rest in the evening. It's a beautiful, beautiful morning. I'm so grateful. Our family, Janet, my wife's family, has had a cabin here at Mount Hermon since Mount Hermon was established. So it's a place that has, uh, for multiple generations, been a grounding place, and we always spend some portion of the summer. Although I have to say, we just stay at the cabin, and I don't come to the conference center uh, because it's just too many people. So um, <laughs> let's uh, continue to pray for just a moment. <clears throat> Lord, we come to this time acknowledging that your spirit, who is here to be our teacher, would be the one who would guide us. As we were thinking last night about the significance of needing uh, your word to pierce through the world that we live in, through the, the noise, the fog, the distractions, the headlines, the anxieties, and the fears, with a fresh and real word, I pray that uh, as you have been doing this week, that you would continue to speak, that you would continue to penetrate the places in our own hearts and minds where we need a fresh word from you, from you. a word that will sustain us, uh, oh God, as we seek to do faithful work in ministry. We may need it for our own individual souls and minds. We might need it for our relationships with our family or our closest friends. We may need it for the sake of the people that we're seeking to serve in our congregations or ministry settings. We're grateful that you are the God whose living word continues to speak to us. May we have ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us uh, to continue today in the two sessions that I have with you to think more about this question of uh, will there be a church in the 21st century that matters? And last night, what I was trying to uh, lay out was that a, we, we need a church to matter, and one of the ways that we will matter or not is whether or not we actually have a word to bring to the time that we live in, or whether we really just bring ourselves. It's fine to show up. Uh, it's really a great thing to show up. Sometimes just showing up is itself uh, you know, a large portion of the battle. But we need something more than ourselves, and the great affirmation of the gospel is that there is a word that has come from beyond us, that is not about us, that it's not a word that we fashioned in our own image, that actually lands in real time and place, that is not just in one sense a literary message, it is actually really an incarnational message. It's a, uh, furthermore a message that penetrates the fog and can distract and sort the headlines and help us to understand more clearly what really matters. But part of uh, our ability to do that has to do with where we think we live, uh, where we believe we dwell. That will have a lot uh, uh, to do with whether or not we have a, a fresh word to bring. This morning, I want to uh, take us to two different texts. One is an Old Testament text, and the other is a New Testament text. You know that in the Old Testament, there are two great paradigms. There's the paradigm of the Exodus, of course, where Israel held captive to Egypt, eventually is brought out of captivity through the wilderness for 40 years and into the promised land. It's a fairly straightforward paradigm. Uh, Israel is the good guys. Uh, Egypt is clearly the bad guys. The goal is to get from Egypt to the promised land. And in the course of that process, all kinds of unexpected things are going to happen. But the transition is fairly clear. And the hope is that once you get to the promised land, that you will actually embody uh, what it means to be the people of God in a way that you feel hampered from doing when you're in the, the custody, if you want to call it that, uh, the oppressive custody of Egyptian rule. That metaphor, of course, is an extremely important um, narrative as part of the Israel's history, part of the, uh, the metaphor that Jesus then uses to describe the continuing exodus that we are undergoing from death to life 
uh, from darkness to light. All of that imagery is clear. And it really is, in a way, the, the biggest arc that says that the reality of the big work of the kingdom is to bring us from our places of bondage into the fullness of, of where we are meant to dwell. And in that context, that great arc gives us uh, a, a, a flourishing hope. Now, the interesting thing is that the second paradigm is a, is a more complicated paradigm. It's a paradigm of the exile. And in the paradigm of the exile, um, it is not opportunism that brings Babylonian uh, captivity to uh, the, the Israelites. It's actually God's spiritual discipline. Having brought his people into the promised land and having given them the evidence of his grace and the provision of his uh, promises in so many different ways, then the people of Israel set about living life as they do, and the church has done the same thing in our own uh, Christian era. But in that context, what you end up with is a, is a crisis. And the crisis is that the people of God decided to do exactly what they were enjoined not to do, which was to become simply assimilated uh, to people that were also in the promised lands. And so the growth of everything that's related to the, everything from the, the building of the temple to the, uh, before that, the imposition of kings and all of that is, is a mirror. How do we become like the people that we're not supposed to be like? That's the great uh, life inside the promised land. And ultimately, it becomes so problematic that God keeps sending prophet after prophet to say, I hate your worship. I hate the way that you're ordering power. I hate the way that you treat one another, and especially the way you treat the people at the margins. And, and resisting, being unwilling, unready, unprepared to respond, ultimately, uh, they are sent into, into Babylonian captivity, into the exile. And in the exile, they're given now an entirely new set of questions. What is it going to be like? to be people who live in response to Yahweh when we've been stripped of the temple and stripped of the land and stripped of all of the uh, accoutrements that went along with the sense of being special people under the special providence of God. And now we find ourselves bereft in Babylon. No wonder they sat by the river and wept. What an unbelievably horrible moment. But in that context then, what arises, as you know, is a whole set of exilic literature which uh, occupies a great deal of our Old Testament. And one of the texts that occupies a very distinguished place, I think, and I want today to deliver not from the fire or from the, from the, uh, the lions, but from the felt board, uh, the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is imprisoned in two dimensions on a felt board and often thought uh, too little about. And I want to just pause for a few minutes on one of the most important chapters in Daniel. Uh, the first chapter is the crisis of their captivity. Um, Daniel and his friends are the so-called winners, you might say, in that competition, the best and the brightest, taken into Nebuchadnezzar's house, given new names, new languages, but they're also given freedom, they're given education, and they're given uh, a lot better food. But the food actually becomes the problem. They decide that though they live in Nebuchadnezzar's house, they have to remember who they are and how are they going to remember every day when everything about Nebuchadnezzar's energy is uh, trying to build them toward assimilation, how are they going to remember their distinctive identity? And they decide they're going to do it around dietary law. You know, that, that chapter is where they negotiate this. They practice that dietary law and are given uh, the opportunity to be able to practice it so that every day when they sit down to eat, every time they eat, they are seeking to remember, we live in Nebuchadnezzar's house, but we belong to Yahweh. Chapter 2 is the spiritual crisis of Nebuchadnezzar, where he has a nightmare that terrifies him. And he sets a, a, a test because he wants genuine spiritual truth. I think there's a lot of people, I mean a lot of people, who appear to be opponents of the faith, who are actually desperately hungry for an authentic spiritual word. 
And when they experience that, they are drawn to it in a way that is unexpected. That's exactly what happens in chapter 2. And it turns out that God, through his provision, does provide uh, Daniel and his friends with both the dream and the interpretation of the dream, which was really a dream about the decay and disintegration, ultimately, of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So the good news is the bad news that they get to deliver to the rageaholic known as Nebuchadnezzar, that his kingdom is in the process of crumbling. And then by the time we get to chapter 3, which is the chapter I want us to think about for a minute, um, basically in this kind of uncommented on way, Nebuchadnezzar builds the idol that was at the core of the nightmare of chapter 2. So uh, he does what a lot of people in power and anxiety do. They take their greatest anxiety and they they own it as a way of trying to control it. So he's going to take the the terror of the night and build the nightmare, which is chapter 3. He simply builds this icon. And then we pick up the story there. Let me read it to you. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, all the nations, peoples, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans, whose lives, by the way, were saved in chapter 2, and that became problematic for them, came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship the golden statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These paid no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in characteristic furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? We'll read a bit more of this text, but what is set up here is a really fascinating, um, a fascinating thing. Idolatry always works better with music. (laughs) 
and it works even better when you can establish a mesmerizing rhythm. The idolatry of assimilation and conformity is set best when it is simply captured by this mesmerizing rhythm. So that all you have to hear is just the first note and you know exactly how you're supposed to respond. And the rhetorical form of Daniel, I think, written in this repetitive way, this long list named again and again and again, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, that rhythmic pattern is exactly the attraction of what Nebuchadnezzar's power is relying on. Hitler understood this. It's one of the reasons why there's been so many PhDs written about, uh, about the, Hitler's use of music, because it was seductive, it was corralling, it eliminated questions, it brought assimilation and conformity. And the danger that that presented to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was noteworthy. What it primarily held for everyone else was the danger that they would lose their life if they didn't do what the musical cue told them they were to do. Somehow, in the middle of that mesmerizing rhythm, they're simply called to fall in line, to repeat and reproduce what's expected. The challenge of living in the time that we're in, where the question of will there be a church in the 21st century that matters, is that by all evidences, the church of Jesus Christ in many places around the world, and I want to focus at the moment particularly on the, the church in the United States, is caught in the mesmerizing rhythms of its culture. That's the main cue that establishes how we live. The rhythmic things that draw us, that, that hook us, that define us, that drive and clarify our experiences are primarily ones that are established by culture. They're not primarily ones that are the choral reality of the people of God. It's the way that we are socialized before we are ever discipled. The way that culture, of course, has a thickness of, of conformity that every single one of us lives in, in which that kind of assimilation, you just need to hear the cue. This, of course, is exactly why Google is so successful. Because with the ever greater capacity to dial in exactly your favorite mesmerizing rhythms and mine, it will deliver to us in countless invisible and oh-so-accommodating ways all of the very things that I might find myself interested in. Well, isn't that interesting that somehow it would just offer me this opportunity or that good or this experience or that place? All of this is a kind of mesmerizing rhythm that they have dialed in. So consumerism in general is built on the assumption of mesmerizing rhythms that you can capture people by the announcement of a sale or you can capture people by the announcement of of a new product. This was, of course, has been clearly uh, exemplified in so many different ways, but one of them I would, uh, would be, for me at least, one of my captivating ones for many, many years has been Apple, like many people, just captured by, oh, that's interesting. Oh, like, now, what is it going to do? And how long will the battery last? And what does it look like? And what does it feel like in my hand? And how cool is that? There is a mesmerizing rhythm. Now, I've often said if I was going to be in a toast-up program, I would have to be in Idolaters Anonymous. And my idolatries are many. Now, most of them are tasteful. They're what I sometimes think of <laughs> as, as sort of pottery barn idols. Uh, they're, they're, they're just collected kind of quietly. They don't seem all that intrusive. They're not offensive. They don't gross anyone out. They're not scandalous. They're, they're just, well, they're, 
they're there. And the phone is an interesting one because, in fact, it is really truly so controlling. I, I physically feel anxious if I don't know where my phone is. It makes me nervous when I can't immediately locate where it is. And it just feels like, oh my gosh, I just, I, no, but I really need the phone. Because I do a lot of traveling, it is amazing, and you all see this, we all see this, travel a lot or travel a little, how common it now is to go into almost any given setting in public where almost everyone either has their phone in their hand or, uh, or is at least uh, touching it or remembering where it is in some really specific way. I once walked from uh, the Fuller campus in, in that part of uh, Pasadena to the Apple store, which is a walk of about 15 minutes, and I counted no less than 45 people whose phones were in their hands just walking down Colorado Boulevard. It was just a feeling of something needing to be really literally at hand. Now, my argument is that the church uh, in the era that we're in, while America was built, a lot of it, with an Exodus paradigm, unless you're a Native American, unless you're a person of African descent whose family was enslaved, many people came to the shores of this country on Exodus grounds who believed that in some sort of way coming here would be a movement from a kind of bondage to the new land and where there was promise. And some people got to New Jersey and thought that surely must be the promised land and others thought, oh, I do hope not. And they kept <laughs> moving, uh, they kept moving westward and some people decided it was, you know, Milwaukee and other people thought it was Chicago and other people thought it was in Dallas or it was on the Great Plains and some people decided it was California and then that was not enough so finally it was Hawaii. So there's this amazing sense of the kind of the promised land quality and this synchronizes wonderfully with the secularization of America. So it's a promised land with a largely secularized vision of what it means to be able to live in the promised land. I will buy my promised land, I will build my promised land, I will own my promised land, I will control my promised land and if I really feel like I just need a little more promised land I could move or I could extend the back wall, or I could build a bigger, or I could add a certain layer, or I could do whatever I want to do, all part of this kind of accommodationism toward a sort of feeling that, again, it's largely driven by the rhythmic patterns of assimilation. There have been, in that arc, some wonderful examples of the church actually being the counterpoint to that, people who identified with the place, who regarded the people, who saw their neighbors, who learned what it meant to love and be a countercultural community. But I would argue the American church looks a whole lot more like, like Egypt, uh, like Israel in the Promised Land, than it looks like God's peculiar people. The moment that we're currently in, I would say, is really much more of an exilic season, where in Christendom we could imagine kind of a, a sort of it was not innocuous, especially if you were a person of color and especially if you were African-American. But for many white people, it worked really well to think of Christendom as this functioning system that was largely uh, holding in place a lot of the things that would be at least a sense of uh, at least secularized Christian values. But now the church is, is in a season of huge shift and division and hostility toward itself and toward many, many other people. And it's done sometimes in the name of recovering, quote, a Christian America, a fiction, I would argue, that 
uh, is, is a nostalgia based on something that was never true to begin with. It's impossible to make America great again if it wasn't ever great in the way that, in fact, was a great but measured not by the standards of assimilation, but by measured by the standards of identification with the heart and mind and love and justice and mercy of the God that we worship. So uh, great in what way? How are we going to be a community that demonstrates our peculiar life, not our assimilated life? This is the challenge of, of Daniel and his friends. They are given every opportunity, and now the crisis comes when the sh- there's going to be a showdown. Which is the great, greatest danger? Is it really Nebuchadnezzar and his power to throw them into the fire? For a lot of Christians, I, I think, the rhetoric of this day uh, suggests that there is a sense that the, the reason why almost anything can be accommodated is because we just want to fight for our rights for assimilation, for the reality based in our own terms. But if we're going to be people who actually are following the, the peculiarity of this text and the peculiarity of of the, um, of the, and not the, not the pattern of the culture that we're around, we have to decide what are we going to do about the mesmerizing rhythms. And what we've tended to do is to build a church that accommodates mesmerizing rhythms. So we largely welcome them. We don't critique them. We don't understand ourselves in relationship to them. We don't necessarily operate as light and salt. We just accommodate them. And then we wonder why people don't find the church attractive. So the great crisis actually is a great opportunity for me. I think that we're in one of the most important and exciting moments for the church, but it's not one that we're ready for. This crisis that we're in culturally, morally, theologically, spiritually, economically, racially, in gender and other terms is is a crisis that sets up for the church one of the greatest opportunities for ministry imaginable in this crisis. And we're completely flat-footed much of the time because we're especially some sectors of the church are just so prone for nostalgia and they're not clear about what it really means to be God's peculiar people. In this moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the rageaholic in their face is screaming at them. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you should worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And our lives are easily brought to the think, well, the greatest danger is that, of course, I have to accommodate myself in some way to Nebuchadnezzar. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, as you know, go on to say this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, you silly little man. We have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. The interesting thing about this moment is that really I think this is the dramatic high point. It's not the saving from the fire. That eventually happens. That's, that's sort of almost like the resolution of things at the book of Job. That's fine. It's, it's a great thing for Job that God restored uh, Job at the end of the letter. But that is not the high point of the letter. The high point of, of Job is the encounter when God in the whirlwind speaks to Job and calls Job a creature who actually needs to understand and contextualize his life. Here, what's happening is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look at the person who's con- the most powerful person of the era who holds their physical existence in his hands and they declare themselves to be free. Oh, you silly little man. 
Our God may deliver us, our God may not deliver us. But either way, we're not going to accommodate ourselves to the idolatry because the greater danger, it turns out, is not the fire, it's actually the idolatry. It's the willingness to simply do what is being required because of the mesmerizing rhythms rather than to live in the peculiar way that we are meant to live as God's people. So the question that I think this text raises is, what are our mesmerizing rhythms? I have them, you have them. It's related to those headlines that we talked about yesterday. It's related to the fears that are inside us and the fears that are around us. It's, it's related to what is it that actually captures our heart? How deeply have we allowed the gospel to actually redefine our sense of vision? Some of you know that a number of years ago, I was in a, a really terrible bicycle accident where my left eye was pushed back in my skull an inch and down in my skull an inch. It was a really super dramatic injury. And it took a long time uh, for this to unravel and uh, eventually to be able to be uh, such that my, eye, my eyesight has been restored. But in that long arc, there was this uh, long, long, long season of waiting. It meant that I had acute double vision. I had one image here and another image here. Uh, so suddenly everything was double, which only had the advantage that my congregation was suddenly twice the size. But uh, <laughs> it, it was sort of my own Picasso period where... Uh, Cubism became a way of life. It was that sort of a season. Um, gradually, uh, my sight was restored, and it took uh, lots and lots of surgeries and many, many months of, of uh, recovery. But one of the things that I remember um, so deeply hearing God say to me in the midst of that time was, you know, Mark, I will restore your sight. I will. But there's a greater crisis that you have to face than the restoration of your sight. The real crisis for you is not the eyeball issue. The real crisis has to do with your vision. And vision is fundamentally a matter of the heart. And it's that that somehow is what's happening here in this text in this really profoundly dramatic way. Nebuchadnezzar raging in front of them. The question is, what do they actually see? What are they able to perceive from the heart about what really matters? One job that isn't usually given to uh, a pastor in, their, uh, in the book of order or in any job description I've ever seen is that we are really actually meant to be seers. We are meant to be people who perceive, who work relentlessly at perceiving what really actually is. And our vision, if our vision, if the rhythm of our perception is really set by the mesmerizing rhythms of the surrounding cultures that are within us and around us, then our capacity to be a seer who, with the clarity of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's vision, could actually declare, no, really, the greater danger is actually not the fire. And it's not you, Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not even the loss of our life. That's actually not the greatest danger. The greatest danger is actually that we will bow a knee before someone or something other than Yahweh himself. Now, if the Church of Jesus Christ in this country or anywhere in the world retains that or even gains that and retains that, we are already then in a game-changing moment because we have found that there is a clarity that is beneath all of the other things that are so easily captivating and, and dominating our perception. So we have to ask ourselves, how is this really working? What's going to happen if we don't actually see more clearly? I think of a time when I was in Berkeley and there was this guy who appeared at the door of my office one day and he said, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm really successful and I'm really powerful and I really have a lot of money and I really don't have time for this conversation, but could I talk to you for five minutes? I said, well, that's quite a self-introduction. Uh, sure, by all means. What's up? He said, well, uh, my wife's coming to this church. Uh, she comes home. She talks about Jesus. I don't really know anything about Jesus. I just wondered if I could come by for some bullet points about Jesus and then that would help dinner go in a more comfortable way. <laughs> and I said, well, gosh, unfortunately, you've come really to the wrong person. Um, I, I'm really terrible at bullet points, so that's not going to help you. And, and then secondly, even if you understood the bullet points, they could have a way of seeping their way into your life, and that would mean you'd have to rethink your power and your money and your authority and your sense of success, and all that would have to be criticized, and, and I don't really have the feeling you want to do that. He said, oh, I totally don't want to do that. I said, exactly. So why don't we brainstorm, if she brings up Jesus, how can you move to some, you know, a discussion of the Golden State Warriors or whatever it is that you, that you would find more comfortable to talk about? He said, no, no, I'm serious. I said, oh, so am I. I mean, seriously, if we had a conversation about Jesus, it would be, it could really mess with your life. And I, I just have the feeling I don't want to really reorder your life when clearly you don't want to reorder your life. He said, what if I came back for a morning? And then he leaned forward and said, you know, I don't give anybody a whole morning. <laughs> I said, yeah, I have that feeling. Yeah, I, I, I got it. So... It was too good a deal to not take, so he came back for a whole morning. This was not a person with a latent spiritual hunger, just buried beneath. This, this was stone coldness. This was a person who did not have a, a, an element of spiritual hunger that I could discern in anything we talked about. But he wanted to do it again, and it was enough of a strangeness that I thought, well, this is just so bizarre. So... We did it again, and we did it again, and each time he would tell me how he would not be somebody who would ever be seen in church, because he really just cannot stand churches. I said, I really understand that. <laughs> so anyway, he ended up suddenly being in church in the third row. I thought, oh my gosh, dinner must have gotten really bad. <laughs> how is this that he's actually here? So afterwards, I was eager to talk to him. He started talking uh, about some things that he had just been on a trip and he was only speaking to me for just a couple minutes before he just literally collapsed in my arms, weeping. I thought, oh my gosh, what's, what's up? He said, I do not know what's up. That's the problem. He said, I was in this place. I went into this building. It happened to be a church. And have I told you that I don't like churches? I said, yeah, I have actually heard that. <laughs> well, I went in there even though it was a church. And I was sitting in this little side chapel. And all I can tell you is that I was just minding my own business and something happened that is just now, I guess it feels like God and this is so messy. <laughs> I said, it's totally messy. It is going to stay messy for a long time. It happened that this guy was standing talking to me and just outside the circle of our little conversation, there was this really, really wonderful guy who was about the same age. He had heard just enough of this, and I started to say, you know, you need to, you need to have a chance to talk about this with other people. Would you be open to being in a group of some other guys who might talk about the meaning of their faith, their discovery of God in the middle of an unexpected place? He did. That person's life has been super radically changed, and it has called because it's changed the way that he's perceived his money and his success and his power and his relationships and his priorities and his core identity. There's a core operating system that has shifted because he grew up 
now in Christ in a way that completely redefined these other things. How did that happen? Because he was in a constellation of other men who are in the journey of trying to live faithful, exilic lives, who are trying to figure out what are the controlling, mesmerizing rhythms, who are trying to stand together and saying, how am I going to actually listen for the voice of God in the thickness of so much else that could distract me from all of this? I was raised in a home where my dad... uh, was really outside the life of the church. My, our family was really outside the life of the church. My dad was a scientist and an inventor, a uh, very, very creative man, and he saved certain neck veins for the discussion of religion because he really wanted to make sure that we did everything possible to avoid religion and religious devotion. You can see this didn't turn out too well for him. But <laughs> So his, his main critique was this, that what religious and religion and religious people do is they take great things and make them very small. So he would argue this in philosophical terms, in historical terms, in cultural terms, in interpersonal terms, a rich array of easy examples, which I could uh, give that you could give. And having been now a pastor for 30 years, I could richly describe just how prone it can be in the life of the church to take something great and make it very small. So I started reading the New Testament as I was a freshman in college. I was just curious about this book, and I felt like if I was going to be a person that uh, ever claimed to have any kind of sense of education, that I should surely read the Bible. So I started reading the Bible, and I read both Old and New Testaments, and and as I was reading the New Testament, I found myself just surprised over and over again at how much Jesus had in common with my dad, that Jesus, too, really accused a lot of religious people of taking great things and making them small, and the question was really, what is it that we're supposed to do? And I gradually... Uh, used to love needling my dad, saying, you know, you should really read the New Testament, Dad. It really just turns out that Jesus is onto the same thing you're onto. His, his diagnosis is actually the same. His understanding of the antidote is quite different. And the antidote that I think Jesus offers us is an antidote that I would call the, the antidote of being invited not into a small place, but into a, an extraordinarily big place, which is called the kingdom of God, which cracks open all of reality where everything now, in its glory and its meaning and its beauty and its groaning beauty, is all held in this incredible sense of what it means to live life in the kingdom. And it's meant to retune everything about how we see and perceive and respond and engage. This is really what brought me to decide to want to be a disciple, because it felt like if I wanted to live an imaginative, creative, loving, expansive life, that the kingdom of God was clearly the thing that was the most overwhelming invitation I could imagine. And it was just the thing that just drew me in a, in a life-changing way. I didn't have Christian friends. I wasn't in a Christian small group. I, didn't, I don't even know who I would have ta- gone to talk to at that stage in my life. But the gospel itself just preached itself to my core. And after all of my contentions against it, ultimately, I came to faith. Now, I told my parents this story, and of course, my dad was extremely downcast by this. His, his greatest hope would be that it would just fade. And, um, and my mom, on the other hand, had a kind of latent faith that was triggered in some way. So she started going to a church. She met a man who was a pastor, that told the pastor that her son had had some kind of religious experience. And uh, having heard that, the pastor said, well, I'd like to come and call on him then. So on an otherwise perfectly wonderful spring day, much like uh, this one, up rolls this pastor for my first pastoral visit. And in that context, 
um, we had some awkward conversations sitting in my parents' living room, and then he said, well, really, I should just tell you that uh, I came for three reasons. The first is that your mom told me uh, that you've had a religious experience. The second thing is that might mean you're going to become a pastor. Now, that was like not on my radar of, of what I thought I might do. And thirdly, if you do become a pastor, uh, I want to make sure that you know which denomination has the best pension plan. Silly me, I had thought I had begun to know the God of the universe. But now the first official religious person representing this thing called the church, for the first meeting in a new disciple, offers me a pension plan and, and a career path. So I told my parents this story at dinner that night. My dad, who was a very gentle-spirited guy, didn't immediately pounce. He sort of just waited for the whole thing to kind of settle into the conversation. And then he said very quietly, you know, this, this is what I've been saying to you. Don't you think that that guy probably someday thought he too was getting to know the God of the universe? But now, 30, 40 years later, he really just has a pension plan to offer you. I think if there was one day that explains my passion for the gospel, the response of my life to the gospel, the thing that was the great boundary that I had anxiety to cross as a pastor eventually, that I have as a husband and as a father and as a friend, as a person in society and culture, it's really that day. Because it was such a clear and realistic and imaginable outcome. We could really give ourselves, even to the thing that we think is the name above all names, but be primarily about the pension plan, which really is about the mesmerizing rhythms of a culture and not about the peculiarity of life in the kingdom of God. So I think the question that this raises for me in this text is, are we able, in our own exilic lives, to acknowledge and recognize the controlling, mesmerizing rhythms that have their influence on us, that define and shape us. If we had longer, I could expansively go into the things that are my neurotic places, my sinful places of mesmerizing rhythms that, that capture me. And the question has continued to be, but if the church that's going to matter in the 21st century, is a church that's going to actually matter in the standards of the kingdom of God, then what we do about these mesmerizing, mesmerizing rhythms is going to say the most about what actually is our message, what actually is the reality to which we point people, what actually is the thing that is defining uh, who we really are and how we're meant to live in the world. That's what then brings us uh, for a few more moments um, to the second part of what I want us to reflect on, which is a different text. It's a text in Matthew chapter 7 and 8. In Matthew, um, which I understand to be really a gospel of surprise, a smelling salts gospel, the gospel up your nose, the gospel that's really about um, are we going to live in the kingdom or not, 
Matthew, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing everything possible to say this is how utterly reordering uh, the people of God are to be. If we are to, going to be the outposts of hope in the world, then we have to be the outposts of hope in the world because we, we are not the mirror of the culture, but reflections of Jesus Christ, right? That's the, that's the road that we're on. And the peculiarity of life, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is it will reorder our heart and our mind and our relationships. It'll change our family life. It'll change what we do with our emotions. It'll change how it is that we worship God. It will change how it is that we actually not only love those who love us, but love those who don't love us, who actually may hate us, even those who are our enemies. That is all part of the head-spinning challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, having then said that, as you know, ends the sermon with this wonderful parable about life on, built on rock or on sand, where the difference is whether or not we will do the truth or whether we'll just talk about the truth. The evidence of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith, building their house on rock, was in the face of the tyrannous uh, anger and power and destruction of Nebuchadnezzar. They were unhooked. They lived an unhooked life. And what Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is describing is, what does it take to live as people of hope? It means how to demonstrate that we live an unhooked life by actually living the thing that he's calling us to, to be and to do, not just affirming it, not just having a nice book of confessions, but actually being able to live what it is we confess and let that actually have an impact on our perception and our relationships and on our uh, engagement. So he says, really, that's the turning point. And after having said, you must build your house on rock and sand, then the question becomes, are we actually going to do it? There's a Max Duprio I mentioned last night, who's a, a lion, really, in the history of Fuller and other places, uh, made the observation um, about the birth of his granddaughter, Zoe, who was born weighing just a little more than a pound. She was uh, extremely, extremely tiny and vulnerable, and he rushed to the hospital. The father, in this case, had sadly uh, abandoned Max's daughter, he, as the grandfather, was trying to be present to this tiny baby and to his daughter in any way that he possibly could and asked the head nurse, what can I, what can I do to help in this kind of a moment? And he said, Max, what you need to do is come every day and delicately stick your hands through the sides of the incubator and just super gently touch Zoe's body and tell her over and over again as you do so how much you love her. Because what she needs more than anything else is to be able to connect your voice to your touch. Max reflects on that in the significance of his own family's life and his relationship with Zoe. But he goes on to say this is what's characteristic of, of faithful leadership in whatever setting we're in. The connection between voice and touch. The incarnation is God's voice and touch becoming known and present to us. And, the, and we are God's plan A, for which there is no plan B, that we are meant to be the agent of God's voice and touch in the congregations we serve and in the communities where we live and in the world that we're meant to influence? Are we bringing what we say and what we do into one whole? And Jesus is more or less saying, don't have people stand uh, or come through the door after you've preached a sermon and say, well done, uh, nice sermon, pastor. Really, what he's interested in is people who are going to do the truth. So having said that, and having uh, it observed afterwards that all those who heard Jesus were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one about authority. That's a technical word in Matthew that repeats itself in various places. And in every instance, it has to do with his understanding of the significance of, of this voice and touch or the, the doing and the being, being one whole. Then the very next thing that happens is this. 
When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. It's emblematic, iconic, actually, that, that Jesus would come down from the mountain, and the first person that he would encounter is a person who is going to question and call into question the possibility of whether or not he was going to be a person who lived what he just taught, or whether he was just going to affirm it himself. So now the sermon turns, and it comes into his own vision. Now what is Jesus going to do? And the challenge, interestingly, comes from the man himself. If you choose, you can be made clean. So violating the expectation of just announcing his own uncleanliness, he instead reaches out through this penetrating thing of grasp, like Nebuchadnezzar did. Is there a real spiritual authority? Like in this moment, is there hope in the world? Well, is there a real demonstration that you're prepared to actually engage me? The person that could stain you religiously. Now, the church is, has a complicated task, and, it's, uh, and it, it fails, of course, and nobody could be less surprised than Jesus about that fact. But it should be utterly clear to us at least what our vocation is, <laughs> that our vocation in this context, as Jesus is living it and saying it, is really, what will I do when all of religion is saying this small thing, remain ritually pure, or whether we're prepared to move across that dividing line. He hears the man. He listens and understands what he's saying. He touches him and says, be made clean. Now, this language all becomes so familiar to us that the shock waves of such a moment are really easily uh, forgotten. The evidence of Jesus himself living what he taught is first then the question, what will you do with people who stain you? Now, we don't operate under the same kind of law that a faithful Jew of the first century was called to do. We herald as part of the Reformed tradition, in fact, that we are set free from some of those things. But we do not live in a world which doesn't have all kinds of people that we think might stain us. And the Christian vocation, based on this example, at least raises the serious question of what are we going to do with people who stain us? Are we prepared to move toward them? Are we prepared to identify with them? Do we hear them? Do we serve them? Do we seek their welfare? What are we prepared to put on the line for ordinary acts of love? Again, with more time, there would be so many ways of asking ourselves the question, are we really prepared to love people who might stain us? There was a woman uh, in our church in Berkeley who uh, was clearly a person gripped by OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and she would always come early and she had special cloths that she would bring to wipe down the pew and wipe off the seat, and she always wore gloves, and she um, was clearly taken up by this very, very small world which OCD tragically can put a person in. The question is that then that became a fumigating impact on the people that were around her, right? You felt like her need actually caused you to want to step away because you don't really know whether you're violating her by getting close to her. We, she and I negotiated how this was going to go so that, so that I was not going to stand off when, in fact, I really believe that she 
needed, maybe even really wanted a connection, but she was also hugely controlled by the fear of the connection. That became a, a small example of, can I move across that line? But all of us in our own uh, context understand this. There, there was this woman at First Press again who used to love uh, coming super early, and I never understood why she was there so early. One day she explained that it was because she came from San Francisco, she was a socialite in that universe, and she would come really early because that way she could park in a certain place where she could avoid the street people on the, on the, the, the streets around uh, Berkeley getting to and from church. And she said, you know, it was a really great strategy until I actually realized that maybe what you were talking about asked more of me than that. And so she said, I, I decided um, that I would put on different clothes than I normally wore to church, and I would just, um, I would walk up Telegraph Avenue. So she sort of lived, enacted this for me on the day that she told me this story, where she would, she came, she was ready, she kind of had her street shoes on, she was ready to walk up Telegraph Avenue, and she put her purse under, she just like walked up, and she said, I actually felt really, really righteous about having done that. And then she decided um, that maybe that wasn't really enough. And she did realize that there was a lot of homeless teenagers. And she noticed this one particular group of students or of student age people that she was seeing that she really thought um, might actually be responsive to something So she uh, and might have some element of hope. So she bought some food coupons so that she could give food coupons to people. And she said, I just walked up the street and I wouldn't look or engage, but I would just like drop them as I was walking along. So that, that way I felt like, you know, I'm really, I'm doing my thing. And eventually, uh, it, it happens that she sees this one particular person who she thinks um, might actually be worth giving some money to. So on this particular occasion, she had a 10 in one hand, and she had her food coupons, and she was dropping them as she was going along the street. And then she saw this guy, and sure enough, she dropped a 10, and, and she uh, carried on as quickly as she could up the street. And then all of a sudden, she heard this voice immediately behind her going, hey, and she turned around, and this guy just gave her this enormous bear hug. And she said, this is what I always feared. <laughs> this is exactly what I did not want. This was exactly what I was not looking for. And she said, I, I said, are we done? And he said, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks. He dropped his arms. She hustled off to church, now late because of the fact the service had already begun. She said, I was standing in the back and I started singing the hymn and then I thought, I don't even know his name. So she closed the hymnal and went back out onto the street. And by then he'd gotten a sandwich and he leapt up and he was about to give her another hug. And she said, no, no, really, I, I, I think maybe not a hug, but I would like to know your name. I'd like to know, I'd like to know your name. So he told her his name and he was the one initiating enough of a conversation that it kind of got started. And then week by week as she would do the same thing, she came to know him and came to know the circle of guys that he hung out with and came to know their stories. And, and then she became a person who gradually realized that this was actually an invitation into a world that she had so studiously avoided because it might stain her physically, emotionally, socially, and gradually she became, for a number of years, almost a kind of chaplain to the early morning crowd on Telegraph. And she came really early so that she could actually just be with them, and she stopped giving food coupons, and she gave no money, but she gave herself 
in this amazing way of just being connected to the people on the street who now had real names and who had real stories and who were, yes, stained, but that was like something very small compared to the reality of who she was discovering them to be. But the church is easily caught, as she would say of herself, that she was caught for years in thinking just being in the small box of the church was really the goal. No, I mean, to go to Berkeley Church where I can get some really good teaching. For what purpose? To what end is she seeking that? And she gradually realized that it was for something much bigger than the smallness of her own social background. All of us are in the sort of trigger point, I suppose you could say, of trying to figure out what are we really going to do with what God has given us. Are we prepared to touch and be touched by those who might stain us? Who are the people that might stain you? Part of the rift in the Presbyterian church around issues of human sexuality often seems to me to be driven in part by our concerns about what might stain us. Some of the ways that we have treated one another in, in categories of gender also have to do with that. Some of the politics that we share and the divisions that divide left and right in the life of the American church, and especially American evangelicalism, has to do with the fact that the left thinks that the right will stain them and the right will think the left is going to stain them. And there's an immediate sense that this is what makes dialogue and conversation so difficult because you just have to say some of the trigger words which will set the other side off and in, the mo in that moment so easily it's the case that the conversation uh, either explodes into anger or not. The question in the life of the church is not whether we have a red church or a, a blue church. The question is can we have a purple church? And can we have a purple church that ultimately becomes much more interested not in being purple or being red or being uh, blue, but actually being a church that mirrors the reality of the kingdom. These categories are simply far too small, and if we're captured by them, it's an indication of just how trapped we are and how unfaithful we are to our vocation to live as peculiar people, faithful exiles in a world that needs a reality much bigger than blue and much bigger than red. Where are we praying for a social imagination that actually breaks those categories and resorts things, not now around issues of right and left, men and women, gay, straight, bi, etc., but actually a bigger picture of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God with all of the capacity and nuance and challenge and beauty and groaning that all of that conveys. When Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, tells the story of the gospel. He first says we were dead in our trespasses. Then he says, but Christ, through Christ we have been made alive. And in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he then says, and the evidence of our being alive is that we are an association of unlike and unexpected people. This is the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. But it really encompasses in Paul's vision every category that, that this peculiar new social reality called the people of God is coming to birth. And the evidence in the 21st century of whether there's a church that matters will, in, in my view, depend on whether we understand that we are meant to be the apologetic of a kingdom that is not of this earth, and yet a kingdom that is meant to be lived in the social reality where like is 
always prone to find like and not prone to find unlike. And instead, the church is meant to have homing instincts that move toward the unlike, that move toward the unexpected, that move toward the marginalized, that move toward the stained. And if it's not enough to do this around issues of, of uh, leprosy and the, the significance of that as a, as a spiritual act, then the very next section of Matthew 8 is Jesus' encounter with the centurion person who represents everything about Roman domination, authority, power, exclusion, everything that Israel hated, everything that they wanted to overthrow, they were, as a centurion, the icon of the enemy. And it's in that context that Jesus hears this man ask him to come and heal his servant. And then he says, no, 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 actually, you don't even really need to come. I know how power works. You just say the word and it's done. Jesus, hearing that confession of faith, then stops the whole action and says to the crowd around him, did you hear what I just heard? I have not heard from anyone in Israel faith that even compares with the faith that's just been witnessed to, by the enemy of the faith. He's given a greater articulation, and he says on the grounds of that, there will be some who will be found who think they're in the household of God who will be found in the outer darkness. And there are other people who are, are in the outer darkness who will be found in the kingdom of God because they too have demonstrated the reality or the absence of that kind of enacted faith? Are we prepared to really hear and love enemies? I think this is, in a way, one of the most avoided themes in a lot of church teaching. Uh, frankly, I, in the most ordinary terms, sometimes we find it a lot just to think that we're going to love annoying people, right? Do you know any annoying people in your life? Are they in this pew with you, maybe right now? Are they on your staff? Maybe they're on your session. They might be on your session. <laughs> there's, there's annoying people just everywhere. And we, we just sort of hope that we can do okay with the annoying. That's just not the kingdom gold standard. Yes, we should learn to love annoying people. And maybe in the progressive development of the capacity to love enemies, by all means, let's start with loving the annoying. So let's get clear in our mind who's annoying and ask how can we do a better job actually loving them, hearing them, understanding them. Maybe that's why they're annoying. And then maybe we can progress a little bit further and really learn to love those who might, I don't know, be like really irritating. That's a little more clawing than the annoying. They leave scratch marks. They're, they're like in us. They're, at, at our, they're in our faces in a certain way. But the gold standard is really this question of, am I becoming a person who follows an enemy-loving God in order to become an enemy lover. There's nothing about the public rhetoric about the church today in America that suggests that that's the instinct of the church. Instead, no, we're the ones who can be really quite articulate about just who is the enemy. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, oh, let's do away with enemies. No, he doesn't say there aren't enemies. He says there really are enemies. There really are people who are your opponents and the world is filled with, in many cases, violent enemies, which is why there is so much suffering all around the world and in private homes, because the, the tyrants are everywhere. There are real dangers and real enemies. But their transformation, in part, depends on actually being loved. I did a podcast uh, recently with... Craig Boyle, who's the head of Homeboy Enterprises in Los Angeles, one of the most remarkable gang recovery uh, ministries, uh, I think, anywhere. 
And Greg Boyle, if you know him and know his ministry, is really a, a very um, astounding person, and he's got this enemy love thing down in a big-time way. And his sense is that, how, you know, when I say to him, so what is really the, the, the key to why you think the work that you've been doing with gangs has been so significant over the last 30 years? He said, well, basically what we realized is that if you're going to really help a person get out of a gang, the main thing is tenderness. Tenderness. <laughs> Not instinctively obvious to me. Not plain that that's, that's the way to do recovery with gang members is understanding their tenderness and offering that kind of love to gang members. Jesus here and in other places in the Gospels, as you know, is that kind of counterpoint, endlessly, the unexpected love. Right at the moment that you think you've got it, then, then it all changes. Richard Mao, when he was the president of Fuller, was once hosting a group of Muslim scholars that were visiting Fuller for a couple of weeks, and it was not long after 9-11. He was telling a little group of us that he had given over his outer offices for them to pray in five times a day, and uh, I thought that was a, it was really great that they were there, and it was great that he was showing this hospitality. But in a kind of small-minded, small-hearted sort of way, I was also voyeuristically curious what certain donors at that moment would think about the fact that he had given his outer offices to this. Later that day, I, I came uh, into contact with a friend of mine who uh, is at Fuller, who uh, was is from a Muslim country and has been the victim of Muslim violence uh, many times in beatings and imprisonments. He really, really, really understands uh, religious hostility in his body. And I was telling him this story, and he said, uh, I said, so what do you think about the fact that he gave this room for the, them to pray in five times a day? He said, well, well, it's not a big deal to give them a room. We're supposed to give them our hearts. Right, I said, that's exactly what I thought. That was, <laughs> that was, that was entirely my instincts. It was all about the hearts. That was, that was what I thought. Like, it's about giving them our hearts. Like, who could care about the rooms? Or not. Now, what was so clear in that moment was this sense that this person was not defined by mesmerizing rhythms. This was a person utterly free to live exactly in the vortex of the collision and to be free to love. He was not going to be defined by the fact that there were enemies. There is an extraordinary Palestinian farm that perhaps some of you have had a chance to uh, go to called Tent of Nations. And it's, it's a small olive grove in a prominent place surrounded now by an, a, a settlement, a Jewish settlement that surrounds and looks straight at it. The grove of these uh, really quite ancient trees was decimated by uh, Jewish settlers who decided to cut down all of these trees. A lot of uh, American Jews heard about this and came and paid for the trees and re helped replant the trees. They live in this very uh, vulnerable place, literally like a prong out in the middle of a bowl surrounded by, uh, as it were, the enemy. And when you drive into the Tent of Nations, there's a rock on which it says, we refuse to have enemies. That's, that's a Christian vocation. It's a Christian vocation that the church has not learned and not been prepared to take up. And one of the reasons why why the race history of America is so problematic and why the church's embroiledness in that, an intertwined, ongoing, intertwined role in that is so tragic 
and puts the gospel in question for not only African Americans, but for many, many people beyond that, is largely because there's nothing that would indicate that in a radical, sustained, and pervasive way, the Church of Jesus Christ has demonstrated that it can live beyond racism. Instead, we live in our racial ghettos, society and economics and business and land and land rights and wealth are controlled by white culture. African and people, African American and people of color are kept at the margins economically, politically, socially in so many different ways. And in the context of that, we want to announce the good news in a very colonialist way that there's really good news for you in your poverty where we, you will stay because actually we love you to come to the gospel, but we'd really love you to actually live in a different neighborhood or to not be in our circumstances or to not let our social reality be redefined by your social reality, by a new and different day. There's nothing very Ephesians 2 about that. And then we wonder again why the people just don't find interest in the church. So where is the hope in all of this? The hope is that the people of Jesus Christ need to get clear about where we live. If we live in exile, then we have to take exilic life seriously. And we have to take our, our collusion seriously. The great anxiety is not settling whether the President of the United States and his party was involved in collusion with the Russians. The real crisis of this moment is the American church is colluding with so many things that are against the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit of God in society and culture. It's our collusion with a social reality that has little or nothing to do with the kingdom of God. That's the scandalous collusion. And for that, there is bountiful, painful evidence. But so we are meant to be the hope. So is that hope or is that despair? Yeah, that would be the question. <laughs> Can the church actually be a people who look like, love like the character of God? And how are we nurturing that in a sociology established in every congregation that has its own smell, its own personality? I was just in a church this last weekend in a, in a different part of the country and, you know, churches are always something, right? You could walk in and just go, yep, yep, got it. Mm, mm, that's interesting. That's an interesting aroma. Some of it felt really Christ-like in a quite amazing way. And other parts, it felt absent of that. So what are we after if we're going to be pastors of a church in the 21st century that's going to matter? We have to take mesmerizing rhythms with the greatest seriousness in our own life, in our congregation, and in a sustained way that's trying to call and evoke and lead people into a new kind of reality. And I think that is a crisis. The second crisis is, are we prepared to live as that will require, sometimes against culture? I'm not here suggesting that's the only relationship to culture. In fact, I think one of the things I love most about being at Fuller is that it's a setting in which I think we attempt to try to live as engagingly with culture as we can possibly do. That we want to have the arms as wide as we can make it and to go as far down the road of what it means to engage as we possibly can. But that's going to mean continuous revision. And that means change and that means loss and that means grief and that means anger and that means all kinds of other things that are the very work that the kingdom needs to do in us so that, in fact, we can live in Ephesians 2 life. I think we have great hope because there is a word from beyond us that says there is therefore now no condemnation and that there's a God who's with us in groaning beauty. 
But like Jesus said, yeah, but now what are you going to do about it? And the doing of it is the thing that's actually going to be the evidence of whether or not this is actually good news. So will there be hope? Well, it depends. Are, are we ourselves prepared to live that? And then are we prepared to lean into engaging others in that? Let's, um, let me just pause there for a moment and pray, and then we'll take a few questions, and I think we're taking a break. Lord, thank you for your presence here. Thank you that you know and love us as you do, and that you have the capacity to meet us um, and lead us into being beacons of hope. Do that good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's just uh, take time for a couple of questions. Yes? Um, and when you were talking about the mesmerizing, yeah. and it's nice that it's actually like, I got expectations for grace. <laughs> about the mesmerizing, and it brought to mind in C.S. Lewis's Silver Chair, Yes. the scene where um, the, the white witch has mesmerized them to believe there is no Narnia. You, you pick up right. that, that rhythm that you were talking yes, about. Yes. And then Puddleglum right. stanches out the fire and right. the incense. And they say there's nothing like the smell of burnt marsh wiggle. Yes. Is there a relation, do you think, to, to uh, pain or, or suffering in terms of how to get out of the mesmerizing state? A direct link. <laughs> a complete total link. So if we live our, if we've guarded our lives in such a way to be distant from uh, from those from this from the suffering of the world and where uh, safety is our primary goal, then we're not going to be in touch with that. If we actually live and know and love people who are in the places where uh, where pain really exists, we're going to cry out for a new and different reality, and it's going to puncture the bubble of the of the world that we live in. Even though we th we can often think that we're in touch with that, often if we're not really in that setting, we will easily uh, be become deluded. Yeah, I think, I think pain and suffering, I think Johnny Erickson Tata has been one of the voices that said, you know, the gift of suffering in the world is really a chance to, to see and learn and understand something we would never be able to get otherwise. Mark? Yeah. Hi. The, um, the conversation within the church is one thing, and, and it seems that America is much less Christianized in a sense than it used to be. Um, it seems that to a greater and greater degree, the host culture is viewing the church as the stained ones that they want to stay away from. Right. What do you recommend? What do you think the church needs to do in order to break that, in order to sort of regain credibility and, again, moral credibility, which seems to be lost? What do you well, think? I think the place to start, uh, biblically speaking, is confession and lament. Um, I think it's about actually owning that. I, th I think a lot of the critique of the church is completely accurate, theologically accurate even. Um, and the church instead wants to negotiate in other terms, deflection. I'd say actually our ability to receive that critique, to admit and own the critique, to let it actually call us all the way back to first things is where it has to begin. And then it has to stay there for a while. This is not quick work, right? If you're actually doing this work seriously, it's going to have an ongoing quality to it. And it also has to be able to penetrate much more deeply than sort of the mere rhetorical level. How do I sort of go, oh gosh, we got a few things wrong. No, actually, there's, there's rot to the core, right? The thoughts and intentions of their hearts were only evil always. Okay, let's start there. If that's true, then how do we push the reset? Then I think that other thing is to have humble, humbled and 
sustained evidences of a freely given love. So I think asking, where are we prepared on a sustained basis? Not to kind of do the, the, the tricks of balloons and clowns, but do the long sustained work of actually just being quietly, genuinely, truly present in love, in a place of pain, at an intersection where the collision's intense and where we have the capacity to learn and to demonstrate a different kind of life. And there are people, I think, in every church, there are certain signpost people, certainly when I look back on my years in Berkeley, there were people that were, they had the gospel in a way that was my chastening and my hope every day. They, they lived in this peculiar way, right? And they were not known, typically. They were not the visible people. But if I was going to be around the aroma of Christ, they were the ones who were often the strongest. So as a pastor, learning what that means um, and, and letting them actually tell their narrative so that I actually am getting a different story going in my own mind. When, when you start life or are living in a social location where being a tall, white, educated male always plays in my favor, just it just almost always plays in my favor. That just means that there's some terms, some fundamental terms that I just don't get. And if I'm, I can decide to just be blind to that or pretend or then get in some kind of strange position of false guilt. I can't be less than tall, white, educated, and male. That's who I am. But I, that's a minimum, not a maximum. And the gospel meets me in that social location, but then is meant to crack open uh, our capacity to grow in love and mercy and compassion and justice. And, and that has to be done in humility and brokenness, not in um, sort of Mr. Fix-It mentality, which is uh, never helpful.